So Acts 15, 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cecilia, <laughs> strengthening the churches. Amen. <laughs> Officially, I want to say happy 2022. I know I'm a few weeks late, but it's my first time up here saying happy 2022. So happy new year, everybody. And I'm curious if you have the tradition when you're entering into a new year, you have a new horizon in front of you. If you have the tradition of making a new year's resolution, I see about 30 something people in the room and I'm curious how many of you be honest, even if you're not doing it today, how many of you started like January 1st, January 2nd, and you made a clear plan for what your new year's resolution is. I would love to see any hands. Do we have four, five, six, six. Okay. Six out of 30 of us. We're not a big new year's resolution community, but the married couples have them. One flesh. You want to be on the same page about those. I want to direct your attention to the screen. I have a chart of New Year's resolutions that this is from 2020, a survey that was given. And most likely the six that did it in the room, their New Year's resolution fits one of these. Exercising, saving money, eat healthy, lose weight, reduce stress, get more sleep, stick to a budget. Focus on my spiritual growth. I hope that you have some kind of spiritual plan. Traveling more. This didn't age very well. This is from 2020 going into the time of hope for travel. Maybe you got some domestic plans or learning a new skill. I just want to brag on my parents. They're actually, my dad is learning Spanish and my mom is playing the piano. And so it's not too late to learn a new skill. COVID has been a good opportunity. Is this true? Your guys, is is it on here in some way? You two, who are the other ones? The other two people. All of a sudden you disappeared. There was one back there, right? Is it one of these? Yes, who was the last one that I missed? I'll just trust it's here. Oh, Gina, was it on here? All right. So there's nothing new under the sun as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. You're not the only one that has this plan. And why do we get excited about New Year's resolutions? What are they fueled by? I learned this new phrase. Actually, it's not a new phrase. No, nothing new under the sun. But I'm not aware of a lot of things of culture. And one of the aspects of the internship is from Pastor Susie and Pastor JP. I learned all things culture. Like, for example, Pastor JP taught me the phrase Lego. I just thought it was like Legos, but it means let's go. Just FYI. I'm like, what is he, what is he saying? And Pastor Susie taught me the common expression, new year, new me. When you, <laughs> it wasn't her phrase, but she just taught me what, what is a popular cliche. 
We as humans all have a desire to improve ourselves, right? That's why we say this idea of last year, I wasn't the me that I wanted to be, but this year I'm going to be that one. New year, new me. But yet, what's the problem? What is our sticking point? How many of us actually succeed in carrying out these New Year's resolutions? So out of these six people, are all of you guys still on track? Yes? What about the shy one in the back that was... You're still on track? No? Okay. Still on track? Yes? All right. So most of us who do commit actually are doing quite well in the church. But if you are one of those who maybe didn't even raise your hand, you were too ashamed because you were going to do it on January 1st, and then by January 3rd you gave that up, I just want to tell you you're not alone. There's actually a specific date called Quitter's Day. Yes, Quitter's Day. It's the second Friday of the first month of the year. January the 14th is, is what this second Friday fell on. That's when the most amount of people actually quit on that day. You can last two weeks, and then uh, forget it. It's too much work. So new year, new me, usually lasts only two weeks. If you are the strong type, as many of you who did sign up, five or four of you of the six, who've made it thus far, congratulations. But by the second week of February, statistics tell us that 80% of you will have failed by that point. So getting a month and a half is actually the litmus test for having a successful chance to be able to make it all the way. Because of those people who make it to the second week of February, 50% of them will make it all the way. And so that's a grand total of 9% of people who make New Year's resolutions tend to stick with it. And so I hope New Philadelphia Church beats the math, but the math is not good. We are a bunch of failures, quitters, when it comes to our New Year's resolution. Now, my goal today is not to teach you how to be the group that is successful at keeping resolutions for two reasons. One, I'm not teaching a self-help seminar. We are preaching the gospel, and so we want to be careful we're not doing behavioral change. But number two, I'm not a success story of New Year's resolutions. I'm not qualified to teach such a message. I'm part of the majority that actually doesn't make New Year's resolutions in the first place. Remember, there's like 30 people here. Only six of us even said, I'm going to go for this. I'm part of the vast majority, 60% plus, that don't even bother. You may have different reasons for them, but my personal reason is, I don't think I'll succeed, so why bother? Why get my hopes up? Just be realistic on the front end. So I don't tend to do New Year's, New Year's resolutions. One exception to this was two years ago in 2020. If you remember, you're part of our community. John Michael Becker, who goes by JM, actually led our community in a Bible reading plan. And I did it from January 1st through the end. And I believe the reason was... I was motivated. I hadn't actually read through the whole Bible since I first got saved. My first year, I read the whole Bible. And then I would get excited about different passages and books. But I hadn't done the full plan. So I wanted it. I had a desire in my heart. Number two, and I think this is really important, is we did it together. I was with a group that we held each other accountable. We had a cockout chat room and we messaged and say, how's it going? If we were behind, we would you know, work to catch up. We, we had a common goal together and we had a very specific plan. And so again, this is not a self-help seminar, but if you want to continue to, to beat the odds, then I would suggest do it together. So married couples, you're smart. At least you have each other to hold 
accountable, but just be careful. It can be dangerous to a relationship when one is messing up and you're like, hey! (laughs) Just a word of advice. So we want to be successful. Our intentions are good, but we end up as quitters mostly at the end of the day. Now, I acknowledge that failing to keep our New Year's resolution may not feel like a monumental devastation for me, for for you, for me. There's bigger things that, that stress us out, but it does point to the frailty of the human condition. We want to be one kind of person, but the truth is I failed to be over and over again. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, but the things I want to do, I can't do. All humans have this desire to be successful, which, by the way, I believe comes from God himself. Here's how I know. Those who die and go meet the Lord, what do you want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were successful. God actually put that inside of our hearts. We want to be productive. We want to, we want to have the life that we've dreamed of. Now, of course, we often use, for, use what Jeremiah calls broken cisterns. We look for wrong ways to try to fill that desire to be successful. But wanting to be successful and productive and live the life that I dreamed of is not anti-gospel. It's actually God wants us to desire to be successful. But we quit over and over again. I remember in my own life, I joined a local neighborhood soccer team. Felt so inadequate. I couldn't kick the ball very well. And so I, I ran away in shame and was like, I don't want to be part of this team anymore. And my mom and my dad made me actually write a letter to the, to the coach and say why I wasn't going to be on the team anymore. So shameful. But I didn't want to call. They were like, you can either call or write a letter. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll write a letter. I once tried out for a school play. And I had to do an Italian accent. I didn't know how to do an Italian accent, so I just kind of changed my, my accent a little bit. And I said, well, it depends what you're... And they're like, they're not, that's not an Italian accent. I don't know, I try. And then on top of that, you had to sing. I didn't know that. I thought I was just going to act, but it was a musical. And so you had, you had to wait in line, and I just ran home and cried and said, I didn't think that I had to sing. I'm not a great singer. Amy reminds me of that many times. I quit piano one time. Otherwise, I could play keys maybe at worship, but I don't have that skill because I quit early on. I, I would just practice the very first two songs that I learned like a year ago. Every time my mom would say, time to practice, I would just go back to that one song that I knew. And so, needless to say, I never improved. And then finally, the teacher's like, are you trying? Do you want to be here? And I was like, not really. And then I quit. I quit a grocery store job in high school because I wasn't very good at stacking the potatoes. And <laughs> Sounds silly, but it... <laughs> you had to make this nice pyramid and I didn't make it so well. And this year I was working on my core, thanks to Pastor JP's motivation. And so I did it for a couple days and I felt the pain in my stomach. Now I'm not quit for good. I haven't quit for good, but I haven't done it for a few days either, so I'm on the track of quitting if I don't have some help. I could talk about some achievements I have in life. I have you know, achieved some things, overcome difficulties, but I also want to be honest that many times I've cowered in fear. I've given up when things got difficult. I am a quitter just like you. In one way or another, we're all quitters. 
We love those stories that are larger than life, don't we? About people that have overcome immense difficulty because these heroes of ours live lives that don't fit into our mediocrity of not being able to just fulfill our New Year's resolutions. One such story is Michael Jordan. You guys know in the the 90s, the, the Bulls, the greatest team of all time, arguably, and maybe Pauline would disagree with Golden State Warriors, but... The Bulls had the amazing team of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, and they were playing against the Utah Jazz in 97. They were two games to two games, and they were, they were away in Utah, where the chance of winning is lower when you're away, when you don't have your home team being like, you can do it, you can do it, they're all booing you. So they're in Utah two and two, and it's a pivotal game, essential game. And... Michael Jordan comes to the arena apparently throwing up all day. It was called the flu game at the time. The, the announcer said he has flu-like symptoms, but it turns out later that he had ordered a pizza and he got food poisoning from, was throwing up all night, and then somehow he willed himself to play. He not only played, he scored 38 points and his team won. That's doesn't quite fit in my reality of, I can't even do my core exercises. <laughs> And he's throwing up all night and scores 38 points. So we like these stories because they're not the quitters that we are. But the truth is that usually the heroes do not start off this way. And especially those we read in the Bible. I was thinking today about Exodus chapter 4. You remember how Moses says, I've ca- or God says, I've called you to speak to, Mer- to Pharaoh. And Moses says, you don't understand. I'm the guy that failed my speech class. I can't talk without stuttering. He's like, you got the wrong guy. But I was thinking about him saying this. This is on the back end of God appearing in a burning bush. Okay. This is God's voice speaking to you. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, God says, okay, turn this staff into a, into a serpent. And number two, he says, put your hand out. He makes his hand leprous. And then God says, put your hand back into this coat and it's healed. He saw all these incredible miracles, but yet Moses says, God, I don't, I know you can do these crazy miracles, but I don't know if you're big enough to overcome my speech impediment. Moses was a quitter before he even started. Many of these stories in the Bibles are full of quitters and failures like you and me. They're not the story of Michael Jordan. They're the story of quitters in the beginning. This story that we're looking at today, which Hannah read for us, is about a man who could be considered an epic quitter, an epic failure. His name was John Mark. We are looking at this journey of a young man who, because of his penchant for quitting early in life, maybe many times leading up to this final moment of quitting, always when the journey was tough, He wanted to give up and made him a failure. But his life would change because of his interaction with somebody named Barnabas. Barnabas dared to believe in the hope that he could be something more than a quitter. So the story of these two today are encapsulated in my sermon title. It is Barnabas's hope for a failure. Barnabas's hope for a failure from Acts chapter 15. Let's get a little context first. We've got these two main characters, John Mark and Barnabas. So who was John Mark? 
He was a believer in the early church. According to a church father by the name of Papias, John Mark was the interpreter of Peter. So the apostle Peter, he was very closely connected to. And he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, I quote. What that means basically is that Mark was not an original disciple of Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus directly. He basically heard the stories and connected to the disciples in the early church afterwards. Just like Luke, Luke and Mark were not part of the inner circle originally. They didn't walk with Jesus, right? Matthew and John were disciples, but Mark and Luke were were secondary sources of Jesus. We hear about Mark in Acts chapter 12. Verse 12 is what it says. When Peter realized, what is it talking about? When Peter was released from prison, where does Peter go? He was supernaturally released from this angel that says, get up and gets him out of the prison doors. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. This is where the early church gathered and were praying. And so we see that John Mark's house was actually the headquarters for the early church. We also can tell that his family was probably quite wealthy. To have a place that was big enough for all the believers to be able to gather, it would be like in Seoul if you said, hey, I need to have a gathering place of 100 people. Okay, this is not COVID time. But I need to have a gather place of 100 people whose house is big enough. You wouldn't find many people that could offer their place. But John Mark had this this house that his mother that his mother Mary opened up. And so Peter connected probably with John Mark through this kind of setting because he becomes the interpreter of, of, of Peter later. So we don't know for sure, but maybe his mom got saved first, John Mark's mom, Mary, and they opened up their home for Christians. And eventually Mark, because he grew up in the house, he's associating with all these believers. It's basically if you're a pastor's kid, you're going to be around the church all the time. He actually, his bed was in that staff room, basically. And so whether he was fully engaging or not, he's, he's hanging around. We also know that he was a relative or a cousin of Barnabas from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. So he's actually a family member of this character that we're going to look at named Barnabas. So the second character then is who was Barnabas. Barnabas was actually not his name. We see in Acts chapter 4, we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 to 37, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. So his name was actually Joseph. But he was so known as this one who would encourage others that they said, you are Barnabas. You are the encourager. It was a spiritual nickname that was given to him. And we see a great trait about him. For example, he was very generous. He has this whole land and he says, I'm going to sell all of it and give it to you. Very unlike the story of Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember. They also sold their proceeds, but then they held back some for themselves. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They were killed. But Barnabas, on the other hand, had an open hand, and he said, all I have belongs to, belongs to you, Lord. He was a very generous and encouraging man. And in Acts chapter 11, it says, he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a model believer. 
So now that we see this context of these two different believers, Mark and Barnabas, what is the conflict? I want to look back together at the text from Acts chapter 15. Okay. So after some days, this is the second missionary journey. Paul took three different trips. This is about to go on the second missionary journey after doing the first journey. Paul says to Barnabas, so on the first trip we went and we did all this ministry. Why don't we go back and minister again to the brothers and see how they're all doing? Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had quit on them basically. In the first missionary journey, halfway along the way, John Mark said, I'm going home. He left them out to dry. And Barnabas says, I want to give him another chance. I want to take him with us again on the second trip. And then, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement between them. Paul took his, his minister Silas with him. And Barnabas took John Mark and they actually split up at that point and went two separate directions. Now, why did John Mark quit in the first place? No one knows for sure, but I want to present a couple of hypotheses. Number one is that potentially the spiritual warfare got a little intense. If you go on a mission trip, you may discover, wow, there's really God, there's really angels, there's really demons. Sometimes we, we back down from that point, but the book of Acts makes very clear that there is a spiritual realm that was going on, especially when you're going to a region that has a, a lot of you know, false gods, a lot of idolatry, idol worship, a lot of, uh, a lot of mi mixture and witchcraft. There may be a difficulty in breaking ground for the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, right before John Mark actually quits, you see Paul encountering this man named Bar-Jesus, or Elymas. He was a sorcerer who was basically side by side with the leader of that region called Sergius Paulus, and he was trying to do everything he could to push back the work of these missionaries. And Paul, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he says, you child of the devil. Don't say that unless the Holy Spirit really tells you to say that. But he says, you child of the devil. And Actually, his eyes go blind for a time, is what it says, uh, because of this, this evil man that was res restricting the work of the ministry, that was a partner of Satan. Because of that stronghold that existed, you better believe that it affected the, the ability to be able to, to evangelize, to minister to, you know, to the region. Perhaps he was having some demonic dreams. He's like, I can't take this anymore. I want to go home. When there's that battle that happens, it can definitely affect your emotions. Maybe it was that. Maybe he was struggling with being the assistant. Mark 13, 5 says he was there as their assistant or their helper. What that basically means was he was a gopher. Have you ever heard that term? Someone who has to go and get these things for us. It's an intern. I want you to go for me and get my Starbucks. I want you to go for me and get these photocopies. I want you to go for me and fill in the blank. Maybe he was 
a little bit tired of all this work. He's like, dude, we, we've, been, we've been the one hosting all this stuff at our house. I've been learning since I was a little boy. I'm prepared to do this stuff. I'm going to go on this mission trip, and I'm going to be the one that's speaking from the pulpit. I'm going to be the one that's casting out the demons. But Paul keeps doing the wax on, wax off thing, you know? <laughs> I want to go. I'm ready. Maybe he was tired of being that assistant. <laughs> A lot of times people leave the mission field because of relationships. You know, we don't know for sure, but obviously we see this contention that develops. Maybe Paul was a difficult boss. Man of God, of course, but men and women of God can still be hard bosses. Maybe they had some relational challenges. Their Myers-Briggs didn't quite line up correctly. We don't know for sure, but he's like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm tired of the shipwrecks. I'm tired of sleeping on cement floors. I'm going home. And so he left him the first time, the first ministry journey. And Barnabas says, I want to give this guy another shot. I've seen a vision of, of who this man is. And it wasn't just Paul that felt left down, by the way. I imagine we know that Barnabas is the relative, right? Barnabas probably went to battle saying, I think John Mark's the right guy for the first mission trip. It was like, if someone asked for a job from you, and I'm like, listen, I know Hannah. I've seen the quality of her work. She's going to be great at your job. And if Hannah gets hired at the job that I give her the referral for, and then it turns out she's not a good worker, how's that going to reflect on me? I think Barnabas was feeling that. He's like, I went to battle, I went to battle that John Mark was, was the one. I, I told you ahead of time, I, I preached about his character that I've seen. Barnabas probably felt the most let, let down of anybody. But he said, I see a a vision that's different. I'm going to go after the hope that I have for John Mark. And Paul, very pragmatically, was like, are you kidding me? You've you've failed us. Like, we, we need to have someone that we can rely on. When we're in the heat of battle, all of a sudden he just takes the boat home. That's not the kind of guy I want to be working with. I don't, I don't blame Paul in some ways. It's like, yeah, we want someone that you can trust that if you're going to to battle with that they won't go, what is the term? Go AWOL. They won't run away from the military you know, journey while it's happening. But Barnabas believed. Here's the application for today. Barnabas believed. He saw in Mark what nobody, not even Paul, not even John Mark could have seen in himself. And that was hope for restoration. I believe that love is pursuing someone who doesn't believe they're worth pursuing. I can only imagine, we don't know what happened in this year plus time in which John Mark ran away, but I was just thinking about how proud his mom probably was, right? Maybe his mom got saved and has this house church and she keeps hoping that that John Mark's going to walk with the Lord and she sees him maturing and Barnabas comes and says, listen, John Mark's the one that we're taking with us. It's not just like any minister. He, they're going with the leaders of the churches, Barnabas and Paul. And, and his mom is like, oh my gosh, my son, I always knew it. I knew that he was special from the moment he came out crying out of the womb. And then what would John Mark feel going home? Would he even go home? I was imagining that maybe he was too ashamed 
You know the feeling of like walking into your house, your mom's so ashamed, like, how can you go to the believer's church again? Like, how do the missions go? It's like, ah, I couldn't take the shipwrecks anymore. The dreams are too hard. He probably felt so much shame. I don't think he went to church for a year. Probably felt so much shame, maybe he didn't even go home. Maybe he was just on the streets. I was imagining Barnabas is like in his car. Okay, not really, right? But he's in his car. He's driving for hours, however long it takes to find where John Mark is. He's trying to go, oh, this guy used to play pool and ping pong. And he's like going to the arcade, every place that he could possibly find John Mark, desperate to try to help him. And then if you've ever helped someone that's in a state like that, they're not really receptive to you right away. Like imagine Barnabas is, you know, feeling all this pain and betrayal and he let him down. And, but Barnabas says, I want to pursue this one. I want to pursue John Mark. I want to pursue my cousin and love him back. And he finally finds John Mark after days of looking for him. He's playing, you know, the arcades, the basketball game over and over again, trying to get high scores. And Barnabas is like, Mark, what are you doing here? And I don't think John Mark was like, you're right. I repent. I'm so sorry. And they embraced right away. I bet it took a little while. Hurt people, hurt people, as the saying goes. He wasn't happy probably to receive that kind of pursuit right away. But Barnabas loved John Mark, even when John Mark didn't feel that he was worth loving and pursuing. Love pursues someone who doesn't believe they are worth pursuing. Now, if we just had this story, we wouldn't know who was right, right? Is it Paul who's right? Is it Barnabas who's right? Because sometimes restoration happens, hope for you know, the belief that they can come back into ministry, and it's not always God, right? There's a very high standard of character in ministry. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 talk about the requirements of, of elders, requirements of deacons, and all of them are character points. Like, for example, do they manage their household well? Are they greedy for money? Are they temperate and self-controlled? There's the major factor that determines whether or not you're qualified for ministry is character. It's not gifting. There's only one potential other one than that, and that is for ability to teach. Other than ability to teach, every single other point and aspect of a leader in God's kingdom is according to fruits of the Spirit, is according to living a godly life. So I'm not saying that any time restoration happens and saying, oh, I think this person should be restored, it's the Lord. I'm not saying that. But we do see actually who is right in this storyline because of how it ends. I want us to look at some verses about what happens to John Mark at the end. First Peter chapter 5 verse 13 says, So does my son Mark. You remember? Peter was, was the one who Mark was his interpreter. So Peter and Mark had this really close relationship of spiritual father and son. We see that here. What about Paul? Paul was the, re- was the real one who was so skeptical of giving this guy a chance. And they got so angry that they split. Their churches split, so to speak. Philemon, chapter 20, or sorry, Philemon verse 24 says, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Paul calls him a fellow worker later in life. And 2 Timothy 4 verse 11 says, Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me. He's not only a worker, he's a good worker. He's actually a really big help and I need him. Hurry up, send Mark. The same one who it's like, no way. 
this spoiled brat who couldn't do his job and was tired of being the assistant and didn't think he could sleep on the floors anymore. That one is a good worker and he is helpful to me. You know what else John Mark does? He becomes the Bishop of Alexandria, according to church history. This huge city in Egypt, he actually becomes the main pastor, the leader, the bishop of this entire church. And he becomes the writer of the book of Mark. Can you imagine, because of Barnabas and one person's belief, even willing to argue against the Apostle Paul, I'm not saying take that lightly that we should just argue with our senior leaders about, dude, this guy would totally be qualified. And Pastor Susie was like, I don't know. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is he had such a strong conviction that even with Paul, he said, I'm going to choose to fight for him. I believe this is the Lord's heart for John Mark. We have the book of Mark because of Barnabas. Now, would the Lord have worked through another man and brought it? Probably. The Lord's sovereignty, I don't know how that all works. But I do know that had Barnabas not pursued Mark, we wouldn't have a book called Mark. Here's something else I found. I have a picture, a painting that I want to share. This is John Mark at the end of his life, according to Coptic tradition, which is the the largest denomination in Egypt which is where he was the bishop of. This is how his life ended, according to church history. When Mark returned to Alexandria, the pagans of the city resented his efforts to turn the Alexandrians away from the worship of their traditional gods in AD 68. So they placed a rope around his neck and dragged him through the streets until he was dead. The man who couldn't handle the mission trip, who was all excited and had this rosy-eyed view of how fun missions are going to be, this man ends up like that. He's a leader in the church, and you better believe he had good qualifications because Paul himself wrote the message on what qualifications of a leader were. And he said, he's a qualified one. I need him to come. I've seen how good of a worker he is. He gives us the book of Mark. And he ends up dying a martyr. You and I are all John Marks. But there was a Barnabas who made John Mark happen. We all fail and fall short somehow. Even if it's not that big of the mission trip, we all are quitters. There is grace, there is grace for us. But even though we can all find ourselves in the story, of John Mark. My question is, can you find yourself in the story of Barnabas? I'm so convinced that the Holy Spirit is raising up Barnabases. Remember, Barnabas was not his name. He entered into that name and that destiny that the Lord desires to give. We're talking about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are what the Lord gives grace for of what we ask. And he empowers us for the work of ministry. I am convinced if we say in our heart, I want to be like a Barnabas to someone who looked like they have no shot, that they've failed, that they've given up, I believe the Lord wants to give that grace. Because at the end of the day, we need that too. We're the John Marks and we need the Lord to raise up Barnabases for us. 
You know how many times that someone reached out, someone shared an encouraging word. It doesn't have to be this big life-altering thing, but a little word of encouragement can be a major difference maker in my heart. And I've had it happen many times, and sometimes I've been able to give a word of encouragement to others. But I want to be a Barnabas. I want to be an encourager. And oh, what that could do. I'm going to end with a story that changed my life in terms of this message of being a Barnabas. There was a man named Jim Baker. Have you guys ever heard this, this name, Jim Baker? He was a very famous, very famous televangelist in the 80s. Had a huge ministry. It was a talk show. He would have different Christian leaders on the talk show. He also raised money for a theme park. There was this Christian theme park that was being built called the Heritage USA. It was a 2,300-acre Christian theme park. And everything came tumbling down for this man almost overnight. In 1987, there were revelations that this baker, Jim Baker, had a 15-minute immoral affair with a secretary of his. And then there was church money that was used to cover this up. This man that was one of the pinnacles of of Christianity that was looked to be this pillar ended up losing everything overnight. He served five years in prison for this fraud. And it was during this time in prison that Jim Baker talks about Billy Graham. You guys know Billy Graham from the big evangelism and stadium events. But I believe that what made Billy Graham great in the eyes of the Lord are stories like this. It was during this time in prison that Baker talks about when Billy Graham came into his prison and he was there. He wrapped his arms around me when I was a mess. When everyone in Christianity gave up on him, basically. Someone who they looked to, they used to for their, for their growth of their platforms, all of a sudden... No one was to be found. But Billy Graham comes. He wraps his arms around me when he was a mess. He was just cleaning toilets at that moment. His shoes had holes in them. He wasn't shaven. He was at a very low moment in his life. But Baker recalls as he chokes back tears. Billy Graham walks in, throws his arms around me and says, Jim, I love you. Then when Baker gets out of prison, his wife, Ruth Graham, just want to say I'm so grateful for my wife, Amy, because we do this stuff together. And it's so powerful when a husband and wife are in agreement with these. But his wife, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, would invite him into their home after he got out of prison. Ruth Graham is so amazing, it would take me hours to tell. As I got out of prison, I was at the Graham home. I was at the church with Ruth Graham and all. But they represented Jesus Christ to somebody who the world said was fallen and would never preach again. They were Barnabases to Jim Baker. They chose to believe God's plan and his love. And I'll say, I, you know, we don't ever know the truth of, of what's hidden in a man's life. But he's, he actually has a ministry again. He's preaching And I've received great grace from listening to this. And if I'm going to make a mistake, if I'm going to make a mistake, hear me, I'm going to make a mistake on being naive and choosing to 
be a Barnabas to somebody else. I'm not saying we should want to be naive and we need to hold the standard of character and John Mark wouldn't be invited back into ministry unless there was very clear repentance and this character that was coming. But I'm just saying from my own life, after I heard that story and saw him weeping as he's talking about Billy Graham, he actually went to Billy Graham's funeral and he put the flowers and he shared this story. I said, Lord, would you give me grace to be a Barnabas? Would you give me grace to pursue somebody who the world said is lost, fallen, would never have a chance to be used by the Lord again? Because what if it's a John Mark? What if this man or woman in front of me is a John Mark? And what if I'm in that situation? Would I have a Barnabas around? We desperately need Barnabases in this hour. So here's the, the question I want to ask. If you haven't made a resolution yet for 2022, I want to invite you to this one. We were singing the song, and I'll invite the worship team up. We were singing the song, Getting Ready. And I, I felt in my heart that usually when we sing the Getting Ready, we're thinking about ourselves that I'm getting ready for the return of Jesus, that you, Holy Spirit, are partnering with me for me to get ready. But I felt him asking me, do you want to help other people get ready? What it said about John the Baptist, you know what his call was? Is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's not going to happen apart from him raising up you and me to choose to want to be a Barnabas. To want to see what they even can't see themselves. Love is pursuing someone who doesn't believe they're worth pursuing. It's choosing to demonstrate Jesus to somebody. Remember, Jesus himself, the greater Barnabas, in John chapter 21... To Peter at his moment of greatest shame when he betrayed Jesus himself. You know, there's a moment when their eyes lock when Peter is betraying the Lord three times. Jesus felt the ultimate betrayal from his closest friend. And yet he was so excited to be the Barnabas to Peter. To say, I know you love me and I can't wait to restore you. Because the love is real. You have fallen. There are consequences to the fall. But do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. I'm being a Barnabas to you so that you can be a Barnabas to somebody else. Before we sing, I just want to give anyone a chance to just say to the Lord, you can raise your hand, you can stand, whatever you feel comfortable with. You don't have to do that. The Lord sees your heart whether you make any public declaration or not. But I was, my life changed after I heard that story of Jim Baker. And I said, Lord, I want to be a Barnabas. I want to demonstrate Christ to someone who the world may have given up on. I want to believe that this person could become a John Mark. Is there anyone who just wants to raise their hand or stand up or whatever you feel and just say, I want to be a Barnabas. I'm going to pray for you first before we sing.
just give a minute to respond. Spirit, you see the hearts here. You see the desire. It's hard to go the other way, Lord. It's so much easier to take the Apostle Paul's choice. You've seen how they let me down. You've seen the trauma, God. You've seen the betrayal. But Jesus, we thank you for the example that you gave to Peter. You looked him in the eye at the moment of the betrayal, but you did not hold bitterness. You held love. You saw him as the rock even then. Some of you who are in that John Mark season, the Lord saying, You're, you are the rock. You don't feel like the rock. You feel like you're being shaken all the time and you are struggling to even say a simple yes right now. But yet the Lord is saying, he's, He sees that you're the rock. Not just Jesus, the rock himself, but the rock is saying that you are a rock. And you're like, are you kidding me? This is that moment when Peter and Jesus are locking eyes. Even in that moment, he looked at him with love and he says, you're the rock. He couldn't wait for that John 21 moment. He who has been forgiven much loves much. How could we not be a Barnabas to another? Again, I'm not telling you what the application is in every situation. There are times when the Lord says, I want you to break the relationship. It's not healthy for you. We don't, you know, elevate someone back into ministry after a fall. I'm not saying the application. But what I am saying is that scripture is clear that he wants Barnabases. And it's not a guaranteed name. It wasn't a name given by birth but the Holy Spirit longs to give it. And so for these that are sitting here that are wanting this right now, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would mark Barnabas's. And as we close and we sing this song about getting ready, I just invite you to meditate on that. That you're not just getting ready in your own individual life. It's so easy to get caught up in individual Christianity where I want my own life to grow. I want my QT to be a little stronger. I want to study the book of Revelation a little better by myself. But Ephesians 3 says that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. I want to understand it with you. I want to understand it with those who are not here right now who need a pursuit. I'm going to ask in the name of Jesus that he would bring to mind one individual this year. If it's more, praise God. But one individual, I want to ask you to make this resolution. If you have a person for me, Lord that you want me to pursue as a Barnabas, bring them to mind. Let me pursue that one with the heart that Barnabas had, more importantly, with the heart that you, Jesus, have for that person. Let's get ready, brothers and sisters. Not just me, but I want to be ready with you and for those who are not at the table right now that the Lord wants to bring here because of pain, because of shame, because they think God's not going to give me another chance. But he says, they're part of the family. They need to come to the table. 
in the name of Jesus, may you let us this year be a Barnabas to somebody else. In your beloved name I pray. Thank you that you are the Barnabas to us.